We are in an environment where uncertainty is extremely high, and that's normally a good, good spot for, for trend following. But at the end of the day, we all know that the best environment for us is when something totally unexpected happened. And, and I can't do a forecast of what that would be, but, uh, but let's, let's uh, keep our fingers crossed that uh, you know, things happen and, and we'll try to make money out of that. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Alan Don and I are joined by Sven de Bergström, co-founder and CEO at Lynx, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Sven, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation, and I hope you're doing well and had some time off over the holidays after what I can imagine was a busy year in in links. It was indeed, yeah. Busy markets and a busy year and, and a very positive year, of course. So uh, it was great, but also great to have some time off after that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into all the specific topics that we're going to discuss, um, I would like maybe to set the stage for our conversation so that the audience knows a little bit about your firm's background. So perhaps you could share a few highlights about what type of strategy or strategies you focus on uh, and kind of where the business stands today as we head into 2023. Sure. So I guess we're a bit different to some other CTAs in the space uh, since we're based in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, and uh, we started the firm, uh, you know, the team, the three founders, we started working in the mid-90s together to build models. Uh, and we didn't even know that there was a CTA industry back then. So, so we built things a bit different, I guess, and, and did it our own way. And therefore, I think uh, the models that we, we have in the portfolio is probably a bit different from, from the major other peers. Uh, so, uh, but since then, since we started the firm, uh, we have uh, continued to grow. We are now 80 or slightly over 80 employees. We, uh, and out of that is uh, roughly the half of it is uh, research. Uh, so we are fairly heavy, uh, heavy leaning on research. Uh, and we manage like seven and a half billion uh, US uh, now. So it has been a great uh, journey over these uh, 20 plus years. Uh, and uh, we, we are a trend follower in the bottom, but then we have uh, diversifying uh, models on top of that. So we are kind of multi-strat CTA, uh, but we try to keep the kind of trend following characteristics uh, of the return. So that's an important part. Sure. Okay. No, that's great. I mean, we're certainly going to dive into to lots of topic uh, around that. Now for... Our conversation today, Anna and I have created kind of a list of topics that we find interesting uh, when talking to uh, our colleagues in the industry. Um, we may not discuss all of them, but we certainly plan to pick a few uh, good ones. So, Alan, why don't you, as usual, kick it off with the first uh, topic? Great. Thanks. Good to speak to you, Svante. Um, it's interesting. You, you mentioned how you went through that research process back in the mid-90s, and, and then I guess you stumbled on trend following. So, what, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that process and how you, you know, settled on trend following being at the core of your, of your, I guess, your investment approach? Was that just purely based out of the research? Or did you have an inkling that there was momentum in markets? Um, or was it um, driven by kind of academic studies? Or what, what was that process? 
I would say, you know, if we go back to the mid-90s, uh, there was a totally different uh, environment where, you know, we just got to Excel back then uh, and uh, and we didn't have price data that you could uh, use that much. You had to buy data from the US and they sent you a floppy disk uh, with some data. So so we started playing around with, with those data series. And, and of course, uh, at the beginning, you will find uh, the momentum, you will find, uh, you know, trend following models is, is really something that you want to have in a portfolio, especially back then when they worked even better, maybe uh, over a period. Uh, so, but, but then also we, we found other patterns that we could make money from, and it was more pattern recognition type of models that we used. Uh, we don't have them in the portfolio anymore, but that, that was kind of, we had diversifying models in the portfolio since start, uh, and we have had it like 25 to 30% diversifying models since then, basically. And I mean, so it sounds like the philosophy is, is try to find models that work and 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 blend them together um in the in that process you know do, do you you set out with kind of a, a hypothesis about what might work and what might what may not work and and test that or is it more of a process of you know just rigorously assessing the data we we always want to uh, have a concept that we believe may work and some logics behind the model. So we don't do pure number crunching, uh, even though we, we use uh, machine learning uh, uh, quite a lot in the firm. We have done that for over 10 years, but we are kind of cautious when we do that. And we try to feed the machine learning models with things that we know work. So, so we don't let them run by themselves and, and just find strange uh, patterns. Um, so, so the starting point is always to, you know, understand a concept and, and try to, to systemize something that we uh, think makes sense. And you mentioned, you know, having the, the multi-strat approach, but maintaining the trend following characteristics. Is that, is that kind of driven by an investment philosophy or is that kind of a business decision or wh why is that? I would say it's... Uh, if we take a step back, then I think trend following is is great. Uh, it's something that has worked for for many many years, uh, and we can see it uh, coming time after time and and come back uh, when people doubt it, and then uh, it takes a couple of years, and then suddenly you you have a home run again, like last year. So trend following is something that that I firmly believe makes sense and makes money. Having said that. It's so painful. The ride with trend following is so painful. Uh, and it's painful for me as a manager. And I can imagine for an investor, it may be even more painful because I know much more about how our models behave and why we lose money in drawdown and so on than the, the client that sits and just look at our daily or monthly numbers and, and uh, start to... to question his uh, investment. And therefore, I think we need to try to, to uh, improve the sharp rate, to try to make some money when trend following doesn't work. And therefore, we, we started out uh, with having diversifying models in the portfolio, still trying to, to deliver you know, crisis alpha, trying to deliver good returns when, when uh, we have uh, a lot of stress in the markets and so on but also smooth that out a bit with, with other strategies. And you touched on that, I suppose, the difficulty, the, the ride is so painful, as you said it. Um, I mean, what's your perspective on the nature of the, the, the return from trend following? What, what, why is it like that? Why do you, you know, if you ask, if I just ask you, why do markets trend? Or if you ask trend followers, why markets trend? People talk about, you know, the different speeds of reaction or the speed of dissemination of information in, in markets or the fact that, you know, economies go through cycles as well, and all, all of that makes sense. But and and the behavioral element, I guess. But when we have these protracted drawdowns, you know, none of those factors change. But we're still in have these kind of possibly two to three year periods where it's not working. So, what do you think is happening in those periods? It's in many times it's a question of time frame. 
I think human mind is, uh, we like to see the daily returns. Uh, we like to see weekly returns and maybe monthly. But to, to have an investment with a kind of 10-year horizon, that, that is nothing that, that we can live with, basically. We can do it uh, when we construct a portfolio and look at the, the back-tested numbers and we put together a portfolio with, with different uh, you know, equities and bonds and hedge funds and CTAs and stuff. But then after four months, people start to look at that again. If it, it, one of the components doesn't deliver, then they start to you know, mess around with the portfolio. So I think, and I think that's good for us, that human mind is, is not really, we are not comfortable with being so long-term that you have to be to be invested in, in some uh, components in the portfolio. So, and therefore, I think uh, trend following will continue to work for, you know, the, the coming hundred years as well, because it's not really suitable for humans to, to, to ride this and, and uh, experience the pain over the years when we don't make money. I want to expand on that a little bit, but also kind of stay on that topic because I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts uh, and whether you read the article or not, uh, it doesn't really matter. But for example, Cliff Asnes came out uh, last year talking about that maybe we as an industry have become too focused on shop and that we were putting too many quote-unquote diversifying strategies into our trend-following philosophy. How do you think about that? How do you balance that? How do you ensure that you still, as you said in the beginning, you want to keep that trend-following kind of profile to some extent. How, how do you balance all of these decisions? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And, and I think we, we, are, we have been a bit lucky um, at Lynx because if you look at our client base, it's, it's very heavily relying on big institutions. Uh, the, it's pension funds and some sovereign wealth funds. And extremely professional investors. And they expect us to stay where we are. They don't want us to style drift and, and do, you know, suddenly have a, a very different holding period or, or add things that makes the return stream uh, different from what they have invested in. So therefore, we have a very solid process uh, where we look at a lot of key ratios uh, when we construct our portfolio of, of all these models that we trade. We have around 45 different models in the portfolio. Uh, but when we put them together and we allocate risk to the models and to the markets, we want the kind of... Uh, expect the return to be in line with what we uh, have delivered historically in terms of how it behaves in, in uh, different market environments and uh, uh, how it correlates with different assets and so on. But, but I also understand that the industry as a whole had a very difficult period, uh, if you go back if, a few years. And it was tempting, if, if you looked at the returns, and we could see that in our portfolio as well, that... Uh, it was tempting to uh, increase the holding periods because uh, that would improve the, the performance somewhat. Uh, and it was tempting to put in some uh, carry uh, components to, to add returns and so on. And, and clients, they, they like the managers that, uh, you know, that normally delivers the best returns over a couple of years. So, so the industry started to tilt toward that. Um, but we were not a part of that process. And we have, you know, uh, tried to, to uh, keep away from, from uh, diluting uh, our, our portfolio. Sure. No. Now, you and I exchanged a couple of emails before um, our recording, and um, and one of the things you mentioned was just kind of the year 2022 as an interesting year, uh, maybe for, for, for you, we certainly know, for, for the industry as a whole, but maybe for different reasons. Well, what, for, for you, what, what stood out in, in 2022, and, and, um, and what do you take with you on, into the future, so to speak, from, from those lessons learned? Sure. I mean, it was an interesting year for all of us in the industry, and, and uh, we are all happy that we finally got to prove ourselves again, not only with the good absolute return numbers, but also uh, being able to deliver, especially when interest rates went up. 
as I guess you have talked uh, several times before about. So, so that was fantastic. Um, but if I look at links, uh, there is a couple of things that we were especially proud of. And one was actually that our diversifying bucket that is not trend following uh, actually had an even better sharp ratio last year than uh, than the trend following bucket. Uh, and that's for me, it's very impressive since since it was has such a home run in, in trend following. And also the other thing that I, I, uh, I'm happy with is that if you look at the risk utilization that we have uh, had over the year, and I guess that goes for the industry as a whole, we didn't have that much risk on. I mean, we, we didn't uh, hit the risk limits uh, very often. If you compare it to 2008, for example, where, you know, we, I think we run the portfolio at that point at uh, roughly half of uh, what the models wanted to have in the portfolio because the volatility in the markets was so extreme. But uh, 2022, um, uh, we were able to to run uh, the portfolio with a more limited uh, risk utilization and, and still make, uh, I think it was the best, the second best year we have had uh, since we started. Yeah, you mentioned also earlier uh, the, the term crisis alpha. And, and actually, I think actually um, Cliff in his paper also talked about do we have this dual mandate or not in terms of creating absolute returns, but also creating crisis alpha. And I, I don't know sort of specific managers who put into their model something that is designed to make money when there is a, a equity crisis. I know that that's what tends to happen, though, that we do end up making money during those uh, periods. But but how do you how do you think about this dual mandate? Do you feel we you have it? And are you actively trying to make money when equities go through crises? Uh, yes, in, in our case, we do try to deliver both. Actually, we try to, uh, you know, deliver the maximum sharp ratio, uh, given that we also deliver uh, portfolio protection. Uh, uh, so, so th and that has been the case since we started. Basically, that we want to to focus on both things. As I mentioned before, we have forty five different models, and, and of course the. To, in a discretionary way, allocate risk to all these models, uh, it's not really, uh, you can't do that. So you need, you need an optimization of some, some sort. And, and we have uh, worked over the years on uh, optimization software that we have internally, where we also can um, uh, track the, uh, a lot of key ratios in different aspects and, and crisis alpha and, and how well uh, the portfolio uh, delivers returns in, in the different market scenarios. Uh, for example, when stocks markets sell off, that is something that we track and, and, uh, and uh, look at those numbers. Um, Okay, uh, very interesting. I might have some some follow up questions, but I want to. I don't want to step too much on on Alan's um, one of his favorite topics, which is research. So, uh, Alan, why don't you dig into that? Well, we might yeah tackle research, but but also curious to delve in a bit more. I mean, on the diversifying strategies. I mean, that's quite a remarkable um, comment that the diversifying strategies had an even better sharp than the trend because we all can say well very easy to see why last year was such a good year for trend following i mean can you give us a flavor of the diversifying strategies and and why they were so well suited to to the market environment last year absolutely and i and i think the reason why that diversifying models can be so different and uh, some have uh, you know carry in that uh, bucket some may have uh, systematic macro models that we have, for example, or you can have uh, contrarian models. And that should, of course, have been painful if you had that uh, too, too heavy weight on that last year. But, but if, if we look at our portfolio, then we have um, some of our machine learning models, uh, they are in the, in the diversifying bucket and they, they behaved very well uh, last year and, and found a lot of, of the moves in the markets that, uh, that they could profit from. And also systematic macro models were very profitable, uh, where we have uh, quite a few models uh, working with other input data than, than price, basically. Uh, so like GDP numbers or, 
or uh, inventory data in the commodity markets and so on, or seasonal uh, data. So, so all, all of these diversifying models, uh, or most of them, performed quite well uh, last year. And um, you talk, you've referenced machine learning a bit, um, and it's interesting that they did so well last year. Um, you get different perspectives on machine learning, obviously. Obviously, they're very adaptive um, by, 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 by nature. But at the same time, when you get regime shifts in markets, they, you know, they, they, if they've trained on a certain type of environment, then they can underperform. But um, what's your, you know, philosophically, wh why do you like them as part of the portfolio? And, and what do you think are the pitfalls of employing um, machine learning strategies? I agree that, uh, I mean, they, they, um, they can be uh, nasty in some, some scenarios, especially in, in turning points or very, uh, when, when market change dynamics, like we had in the COVID crisis, for example, they, they uh, lost a lot of money during that period, our models in the machine learning bucket. So I wouldn't say that they, you know, are better than traditional models in all, all market environments. Uh, but in an environment where where uh, the models have seen similar patterns uh, historically, then they then they uh, tend to to make uh, good money. If you look at how we uh, use these models and how they uh, they are constructed, uh, we I think we tend to pre-process data a bit more before we feed the the uh, machine learning model. Uh, with data, so we don't, you know, take a lot of price data and just put it into the machine and let the machine uh, find patterns. Uh, we we would pre-process and and maybe uh, you know, for example, put in uh, seasonal uh, patterns, for example, that we know has some positive return uh, expectation, and then we let the machine learning model use that uh, type of data. And you know, for people who are not statisticians are not familiar with these techniques. I mean, if you were to try to describe what a machine learning model is doing relative to a more traditional model, how would you describe that? I, I would say that they are more, uh, that they are um, more flexible and uh, change over time, that we don't have any predefined uh, parameters uh, that you, you normally have in traditional trend following models, for example, that you predefine what kind of parameters uh, should be used. In the machine learning model, you, uh, you have a much more open uh, mindset uh, when it comes to uh, the, the um, parameters. And, and that can shift over time. So talking about time frames, the machine learning model may change the time frame uh, holding periods of, of the positions uh, uh, much more compared to traditional models. And obviously, the, I guess underpinning that then is the belief that once the model changes, you know, becomes faster or slower, that that, that, that new kind of new market environment will persist at least for a while. Um, so, you, you know, that the, the model can sometimes trade faster, sometimes trade slower. I get any intuition as to why markets operate that way, that, that those shifts occur, and then when they do occur, that they tend to be persistent for long enough to be able to capture that change? Yeah, I, th I think if you look at machine learning models versus traditional models, I wouldn't say that they are better. Uh, I would say that they, they add diversification, that they have a different return stream. Uh, and the, if you look at our history and what we have... Uh, Delivered, I would say our machine learning models they have a slightly higher uh, sharp ratio over the ten years that we have traded them compared to to other models, but it's really not that where that is not the reason why we have them in the portfolio. It's more that we want the diversification and we want a different return stream, uh, and we know that uh, they will lose money in some. Uh, some environments, and, and we're fine with that, uh, and they will make much better returns in, in other environments. Um, so it's pure diversification. Alan, can I interject a question just? I'm curious because I understand the argument for having these diversified models, and uh, and you said earlier, Svante, that uh, you, you also you, you know uh, that one of the reasons why you kind of wanted them is because it's so hard to hold trend following for many investors. 
But I was thinking of the other side of the story, and and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And that is, well, what if these diversifying models prevent you from really making a lot of money in one year when trend followers are really making a lot of money or even making a lot of money in a year where equities are down a lot and where classic trend is doing well. I mean, so it's the flip side of, yeah, maybe we we don't lose so much perhaps, but also maybe also not making the same amount of money as other trend followers during the time when investors really want trend following to kick in. I don't know if you've experienced it, Um but that's the other side of the coin when you decide to go into these uh, more diversifying uh, models. So I, I'm curious just how your how your thoughting or your your thought process is around that. I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, it's not a kind of easy decision to say that it's better to have them in the portfolio because there are there is a flip side, of course, that you you may drag on returns uh, when when uh, when you don't want to drag. Uh, but going back to to w- what we started talking about, I think that uh, you you need a return stream in the total uh, fund or the total program that is uh, you know good enough for investors to stick with you in good and bad and for many many years. And, and therefore, I think diversifying models make sense uh, for us at least. But then, of course, you don't want to put in, you know, what I, you would get some diversification if you put in uh, like um, long bias in bonds, for example, that adds diversification, but but uh, that is not what we can to, we don't want to, to have that in the portfolio. Uh, so, so you need to, and you don't want pure carry to a great extent because that will drag on performance when we have a tr- good trending environments. To take the point a little bit further, um, if if the, if you were running a portfolio of, say, fifty percent equities and fifty percent the multi-strat, would the composition of the multi-strat be different than if it was run on on a standalone basis? Let's put it like this: if some investors uh, I have talked with over the years, they may want to be extremely uh, smart and say that why don't we trade your trend following. Uh, models, but we don't want to take long position in stocks because then I get a, a much better diversification to my traditional portfolio that I have. Makes sense. The problem is that such an investor would stick with us for, you know, a year or two, but then realize that this is so painful because his sharp ratio in this investment uh, will be much lower and uh, he will not keep that inv- investment o- over a, a cycle. That's my guess in a way. I, I think, you know, sometimes you need to put together a portfolio of, of models uh, uh, that is something that you have a sharp ratio of at least 0.5 or something that you can live with o- over over time. But even that portfolio is, is uh, painful uh, over periods of three or f- five years uh, now and then. Um, but I think, you know, you, you need you need something that that you can live with. That's the most important thing. Maybe just come back to the research process and, you know, I suppose the, the process of adding and removing um, models. You mentioned that the, back in the 90s, you had obviously trend, but but also you found other patterns that, that worked in, in markets. So kind of a pattern recognition approach. But when you find something like that that's working for a while, you know, what, what's the threshold then for, for removing a model when it starts to underperform and replacing with something else? Is it purely... I guess it's primarily based on performance um, and, and how much of a kind of a draw end do, do you allow for, for individual models? That's a, that's a very tricky thing. It's easier to, to add models, uh, to find new models and, and put them in the portfolio and you feel uh, good about it and think you have added value. But then uh, after a couple of years, when a model doesn't perform as expected, uh, then there is a big question: When when should you pull the trigger and and remove it from the portfolio? And I think we, we performance is one thing, uh, but we you normally need to give 
them uh, quite a few years before you really can tell that this model is not uh, behaving as expected. Uh, uh, so if you look at uh, when we have stopped trading models, I would say the most uh, the most common uh, reason is that uh, um, we find a new model that you know uh, tries to to do the, uh, roughly the same thing but is better in, in a different in some way uh, and then we we uh, uh, you know terminate the old model uh, that, I would say that's the, the a very common reason uh, but also of course of, of performance reasons what, what we have done I talked about the the software that we use for allocation to these models. And, and that software actually uh, automatically nowadays uh, reduces uh, allocations to models that doesn't perform as expected. So, But that is a process over, over several years. But uh, it feels fairly good to, to know that, uh, you know, if it doesn't perform, then it will automatically reduce the weight so it doesn't really destroy the total portfolio uh, performance. I Yeah, no, I was just going to say on that topic, I actually remember, uh, and maybe you still do it, Svante, but I remember many, many years ago reading your kind of annual letter where you were talking about how you had changed from, say, shorter-term models to medium-term to longer-term, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if that was done by committee back then or whether that was done by by this uh, algorithm you you mentioned, but uh, it's always been very, um, you know, uh, fascinating to to see that kind of transparency and see, well, this is, this is exactly what we're doing. Now, I want to shift gear a little bit because one thing that also stood out to me, at least in 2022, was this fact that although it's not a new area, really, but it did get a lot of attention. And that CTA replication, there were certain uh, ETFs that came out that grew a lot, certainly compared to many of the managers. Uh, they, they raised a lot more money than the managers uh, under, under, underneath the, the index. But you are in, this, in the SOCGEN CTA index, um, and therefore you are being replicated, Sven. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. But, but, but uh, uh, so I, I want... I wanted to ask you what you think about replication um, in this particular case. And we have talked to the people doing it and they will be on the podcast in a few weeks as well. But they're they're not building their own trend model, which we saw maybe five, 10 years ago, people were coming out saying, trend following, it's so easy. We can do it and we're going to charge you, um, you know, 50 basis points or, you know, uh, 1% or whatever. Now, then they also realized that it, maybe it's not that easy and, and so these products didn't do so well. Now there's a new wave, not just CTA, but also hedge fund replication, where they essentially just study the daily returns of these indices and then they make some kind of regression analysis to figure out roughly what exposures we as an industry have uh, on our books. They narrow it to the very liquid markets. So far, they have done a pretty good job uh, in replicating um, the performance. So again, what are your thoughts about replication, and 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 do you think it's a good thing, or do you uh, do you have con- some some concerns, and do you think this approach, because you you know much more about this than I do, uh, do you see any weaknesses in using this type of analysis to try and and replicate uh, our industry? I I think. Yes, you can uh, probably replicate uh, CTA returns um, uh, as they and they have proved that, of course. Um, what I'm more skeptical about is really w- will they have the same returns as we have as as the flagship programs that they try to replicate? And I'm very skeptical that they at the end of the day will have the same returns. Again, we need many years of data before we can, you know, uh, say w- if it worked or not. But uh, but if you look at what we do in terms of putting a lot of, of resources in in how we allocate the diversification between markets and models, uh, a lot of uh, executions, uh, how we execute the trades. We we have a full team of uh, of people uh, working with those algorithms uh, that we use for execution. There is a lot of things that you don't uh, get when you try to replicate this. So I don't think they will have the same sharp. I think they will uh, certainly deliver uh, performance that is good enough, but uh, I don't think they will outperform the industry. And also, uh, again, 
coming back to what we talked about in terms of confidence. This is a confidence game. The, the clients, they need to be confident that their investment will deliver over time. And uh, when we are in a drawdown, uh, we can talk to our clients, we can try to explain uh, why you know, markets have behaved in a certain way, why our models haven't performed and so on. If you look at the replication strategy, how and that because that strategy will outperform in some periods it will underperform in other periods how on earth during a period when they underperform how should they explain what is going on uh, and how should the investor feel that he will uh, that the drawdown uh, or the underperformance will uh, stop at some point and he will come back. Yeah, I, I, I can't see that happen, actually. I think they will at that point uh, redeem and, and, you know, invest the money in, in, the, uh, in the real managers instead. Yeah, no, I think that's a valid point, Svante, uh, for sure. I, I want to go back to something you also just brought up yourself uh, when you said uh, talked about ex- execution. Uh, we have already uh, had one short-term manager in in our series, and obviously they brought up the point about execution. For trend-following strategies as such, obviously, uh, well, I guess I'm curious to know whether for medium, long-term trend followers, um, and let's just say that was what you did only. I don't know if you have some shorter-term models, but let's just say we stay in the trend-following uh, realm, do you think execution plays a big role for those strategies up until a certain size? Meaning, it does execution for trend-following strategies really only become that important once you hit a certain AUM? Because, I mean, if I look at the, a lot of the longer-term managers, for example, they, um, you know, their annual brokerage cost is. 25 to 50 basis points. So there's also a limit to how much you can squeeze out of that because they don't trade so often. So how, how do you how do you view execution within links? I think you when you talk about execution, time frame is one thing. I mean, if you're a long-term uh, trend-following manager only, then of course execution is not that important. You can execute the, the following day and, and you will get roughly the same returns. Since we are diversified also in terms of timeframes, uh, we have long-term uh, models, but we also have short-term models that, that, that has a holding period of a few days. Uh, and, and in that space, it's really important to limit the slippage and the trading cost that you have. Because it's not uh, it's not the execution cost with the brokers that is interesting, really. It's it's the slippage, uh, and and the better execution you can get, and the smarter our execution algorithm uh, gets, then we can trade even shorter term, and shorter term uh, will add uh, even more both diversification and returns and and the crisis alpha. So so for us, uh, you know, execution has been very important part of of the business uh, for the past uh, 15 years, basically. Yeah. You talk about diversification, uh, which of course is one of the founding kind of principles of trend following has always been that way. And there are obviously different types of diversification. You've talked a lot about different strategies and models, but there is the other classical uh, ways of diversifying, and that is just uh, the number of markets you trade. And I've been on record saying, well, I don't really see the performance difference between people trading the 60 classical liquid markets and people who trade 300 different markets, except I understand that from a capacity issue, of course, uh, 300 markets will give you more capacity. I understand that. How do you see this point about uh, market diversification? And are there any things that is like a no-no for certain markets that you just, you know, where you just don't want to go in that direction? I don't even know how many markets you trade today, to be honest. We trade um, today 100 markets and, and we have uh, roughly 20 more markets on the way into the portfolio. So I, I agree with you, actually. I think uh, you don't add a lot of value when you increase the number of markets uh, too much. Of course, it's much better to trade uh, 50 markets uh, compared to 10 markets uh, or, or uh, maybe 100 compared to 50 but after that, you know, between uh, between uh, two uh, market number two hundred and three hundred, I, I can't really see that you add much value. 
I, I think also you can look at what you try to achieve. Um, when you look at the major markets, uh, the, the most liquid markets out there, uh, maybe the, the kind of 50 uh, biggest markets, uh, it's there that you get the crisis alpha, the, the, you get the the uh, the trend following characteristics very nicely uh, there. When you go to the very the markets that are not liquid, uh, like markets number two hundred, uh, you may have them in, in the portfolio for different reasons. I would say that, and that is that you want to add return. Uh, but they are so uh, the liquidity is so bad, so you can't be uh, short terms. You need to be long term, and when you're long term, you don't get the crisis alpha uh, to the same extent. Uh, so for us, I would say the hundred markets that we have, uh, that's good enough uh, to, to deliver uh, the kind of uh, crisis alpha and and the trend following characteristics. We have now twenty markets, and that will help us to you know pick up the capital basis points in return, uh, but it, it, in, in a portfolio context, it's, it's not really something to, to, be, uh, to, write, uh, to be very proud about and, and talk about too much. No, I, I like that. Thanks very much, Svante. What about uh, you, Alan? Where do you want to go yeah, next? So, um, I mean, just moving on to think about risk management. And um, uh, you, you, I mean, you talked already about that at the at the model level in terms of managing drawdown, I mean, how do you think about uh, risk management at the overall portfolio? Obviously, it's it's a multi strat, so not just pure trend. Are, are you targeting a given level of um, volatility? And also, you know, a, a topic that comes up all the time on this uh, uh, podcast is kind of dynamic versus static position sizing and and vol sizing and and kind of targeting a level of vol on an ongoing basis. Is that part of your philosophy? And why do you think it's a good idea or, or not? I mean, dynamic uh, positioning in terms of uh, to, to adjust to volatility, for me, that's a no-brainer. I mean, to have it static, that was 20 years ago. We could discuss that, have a, have a predefined number of contracts for a difference, for a certain signal in a certain market. But nowadays... Well, I guess there is still a view that that, might, that may still be a valid approach in terms of delivering convexity and skew and that when you get a market starting to move, you really want to participate in that market. But as you say, it is, it is kind of the old school perspective. Obviously, you don't agree. I, exactly. I, I, I think it's old school and I think... Uh, if you look at the year like last year, for example, or 2008, uh, the, the, the less sophisticated you are, the better, actually. When you, you, you keep big positions, you don't care about volatility increasing or uh, you just uh, ride the trend and make a lot of money. So, but it's, it's in market environments where you struggle uh, that you need to, to to adjust uh, to make sure that you don't take too much risk and and uh, and use that in, in a risk management context. That that's that's how we do it anyway. Uh, and in terms of volatility targets uh, for the program, we have uh, eighteen percent uh, yearly target uh, in the standard leveraged uh, version. But then what we may be different from from some other managers is that we are very flexible. Uh, even though that is the long-term target, uh, we can have much more or less risk in the in the portfolio at a certain point in time, depending on market behavior. If we have a lot of uh, markets trending and strong signals, uh, we will normally carry more risk uh, than the average. And the other way around, when we when we come into drawdown, we uh, the the models themselves have uh, integrated uh, risk management uh, components so they will reduce their risk uh, and also and that goes for the total portfolio as well that uh, when the, the models don't want to to take that much positions then we will have a, a very limited uh, risk in the total portfolio so for us it's integrated uh, we don't have any kind of overlay on the top to take care of of, of the risk uh, level that is something that is done by by the models 18 uh. percent is still quite quite a punchy level of volatility you would say i mean when you're talking to investors potential clients how do you guide in terms of uh, drawdown expectations 
but you know, is is there a kind of a, a mechanical ratio between uh, expected drawdown and volatility in in your opinion? Of course it is. Yes, I mean uh, uh, you can. And actually, since we use managed accounts for for a lot of investors, they can choose their volatility uh, themselves. Um, and if you are very sophisticated, then of course you should have maximum volatility because, and then then just adjust your uh, your investment. Um, so invest. Uh, less money and but to high volatility and and put your money elsewhere to make them work instead of having them as as margins in a in an investment in the CTA so that's really a, a good selling point for CTAs that we have this kind of flexibility in terms of uh, of volatility but then of course uh, an investor should also be uh, coming back to staying power and and confidence uh, they shouldn't invest more than that they can live with the drawdowns, uh, and and it's better to you know uh, start uh, with a, a lower amount and and then after a few years when you get the confidence to increase um, instead of uh, investing too much uh, day one and then be too nervous and and redeem after a couple of years. Um, j- just on this topic, I mean, you, you mentioned how you know you really need a lot of data to assess whether something has stopped working, you know, statistically, you know, from the same perspective, if you were on the allocation side, you know, most people, I think, in the industry look at manager performance kind of three years is probably the default um, that you kind of get a sense just speaking to people, maybe, as you said, 10 years is a very long time uh, for people to endure. Five years is probably pretty long. Three years is probably fair enough. But I mean, from a statistical perspective, what, what is the correct answer, do you think, if you were to evaluate whether something is, is no longer statistically valid, whether a model or even a manager? I think on the manager level, to evaluate the manager, I, if I was on the allocation side, I wouldn't look too much on the numbers. I, I wouldn't pick the the manager with the highest performance. I would dig into uh, the program to see what they do and the, the people behind it, the research process, uh, and and get confidence in the team uh, because I think that's a much better prediction of of kind of of the confidence that you will have in a manager in difficult times. The numbers uh, is good in, to some extent. Of course, you, you need decent numbers. You don't want to to invest in in something someone that hasn't delivered performance over the years, uh, even though they seem to be a good team. But uh, but uh, if if you have delivered ten uh, percent yield return or or eight, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's the best prediction of future returns. Actually. Okay. And I mean, going back to that period in kind of, of the tough, the tough drawdown period that 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 for trend following back in say, you know, twenty up to period up to twenty nineteen, there was, you know, there was, there was I suppose allocators were starting to question whether something had had structurally changed. You know, in re- obviously with hindsight, clear, clearly that wasn't the case. But um, you know, how did you answer that 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 question at, at the time? Um, you know, in terms of the the underperformance in that period. We um, getting back to actually to what Neil said uh, that you you have read our letters and that we are transparent, uh, and that's really how we try to to get the confidence from our clients. We are very transparent with what we do. We discussed uh, the models and the concepts, and uh, and we try to to get them confident in in in, in our investment management process. And that helped us a lot, uh, actually, uh, during the, the difficult period, uh, because they understood we could explain to them what types of models that underperformed and, and why we thought that was and what we tried to achieve when we did changes and so on. And uh, we were lucky enough to, to keep uh, most of our, our clients uh, over the difficult period. And, and I think the transparency was really the key there. I want to dig in a little bit more. Well, maybe it's more of a comment, actually, because I do think it's it's a fascinating topic. Um, and I, th- I think there's this narrative being built up right now that, uh, as you said, so in the 2008-2022, the static position-sized uh, managers 
um, did better. Actually, I don't think that is true. I think there's one or two that did really well. But if I look, if I just go back and quickly look at those at, at 20, uh, 2008 and 2022, I think actually a lot of the larger managers who definitely use dynamic position sizing did really well. And, and also in 2008, I think the whole industry did really well, where I wouldn't say, yeah, no, that's because of uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we, we kept the same positions uh, in, in and, and catching these outliers. I don't think that was the case at all. So I, I, I really do question kind of this uh, uh, idea or narrative that um, that, that the dynamic position sizing doesn't allow you to to capture these big trends. I actually think it does. But maybe it's because we don't lose so much potentially during the corrections that it shows up as a very competitive performance. Um, so so that was just something that I thought about when I heard you speak. Yeah, you, you, I, I, I agree. I, I maybe, you know, was a bit uh, hard on the wording there. Um, uh, but, but also if I look at the last year, for example, uh, and also 2008, uh, if I look at our model performance, uh, our really good performance came from very basic models. Actually, the model that make, made a lot of money last year was a model that we have had since we started. Uh, and that's uh, not a very sophisticated model at all. Uh, so, uh, but we use it nowadays with uh, dynamic position sizing, uh, but we didn't, uh, you know, back in the days. Uh. Now, another thing I'd, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, is, um, I, I call it capacity fees and flows. Now, speaking of 2008, we know that uh, the industry did well, uh, and this I guess also this is kind of around the time when Katie Kaminsky coined the term crisis alpha. So, um, so a lot of institutional investors kind of thought, yeah, this is great. We definitely need a lot of that, so or more of that. So AUM increased significantly um, following 2008. Now, I don't know if we, we can say that maybe some managers overstretched their capacity back then and that was uh, the reason why performance didn't continue as strongly. I'm not so sure that really is the case. But I'm curious about the issue about capacity from your point of view, uh, both from what you see your own capacity might be, but also capacity in general. How do you even measure what what your capacity truly is? So so let's kick off with that. I I think capacity is—it's uh, never a firm number. Actually, it's—it's um, it's more a question of how much slippage do you want to pay uh, before your uh, return uh, suffers too much, uh, and that is, you know, not a, a black and white answer to that question. What I can say is that we have now seven and a half billion under management, uh, and I think we we could probably have ten or twelve billion without uh, a lot of increase in in our slippage. Uh, so what would happen if if we got another billion in assets? Uh, I would probably hire ten more researchers, and those researchers could hopefully you know help us to increase the expected returns and compensate for the increased slippage that we need to pay because we have another billion on the management so it's a kind of trade off uh, and i don't think I, I don't want to be too greedy i would rather close the program instead of you know having too much assets uh, and uh, and suffer in terms of of slippage and and uh, performance but i think from 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 the industry point i think uh, i don't think the performance of cdas is driven by capacity or how much assets we have in management i know that question comes up from time to time, and and they, it normally comes up after a couple of bad years, uh, but our performance is driven by how markets behave and uh, and uh, totally other things than how much money we have under management in CTAs. We we are just a very small part of of the financial markets, and and the markets are deep and. Uh, you know what what we do in the fixed income markets or equity markets that doesn't really affect uh, you know uh, the market moves at all over time i would say mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you mind, Alan, me jumping into a couple of other things that I know uh, Svante might uh, enjoy talking about, but uh, maybe areas that we haven't talked about so much with the other managers. Um, two things, actually, and, and then you can decide how much time you want to spend on each. ESG, I find interesting because a lot of people struggle, I think, with with co- putting it into context of a, of a CTA or, or systematic manager like like we are. So I think that's an interesting area. Feel free to talk about that. But also, um, you said, well, then we'll just hire another 10 uh, researchers. Um, and, and there, actually, I think location um, is interesting because, as you said, uh, at the right at the beginning of our conversation, you're based a little bit off the beaten path because you're in Stockholm, you're not on Wall Street. So how do you find all these researchers? And does it change the way you think about research from the fact that you may be hiring quote-unquote, uh, more from the same sources than maybe people from based in New York or London? So let's start with that one, and we'll dig into ESG after that. And I, I agree with you. I mean, being in Stockholm, we have a much smaller pond to fish in here when it comes to talent. Uh, and um, you have to be honest. To We could hire people from London and, and ask them to come here. But the problem is that after two years, they would move back because it's dark and cold and high taxes. You know, they, they just want to get out of here. So so we need to, to uh, we will have uh, Swedes, uh, mostly Swedes. Uh, and uh, But the good thing for us is, we are the only uh, large uh, CTA in this part of of, uh, of the world, and uh, we can offer them a, a fantastic uh, work environment, uh, and they they will have really fun things to work with uh, at Lynx. Uh, so when you look at the team that we have, uh, we have very low uh, turnover in the team. Uh, a lot of our senior researchers, or I would say all of them, have been here for. T- 10 to 15 years, uh, all the uh, senior researchers are partners. And uh, so, so what you get is, uh, is a very open environment where you can discuss everything because you know that they will not jump to another CTA uh, after we pay the bonuses in February, uh, but they will be here for the long term and, and enjoy uh, the work. Yeah. But uh, of course, the, the pond is, is smaller to fish in. Sure, sure, but it seems to work, so that's good. What about ESG? How do you um, how do, how do you even how do you approach ESG? I mean, we we I think it's important part of of not just what we do, but uh, from me as a person and a part of the society. I think uh, we need to be responsible. And uh, our investors and our employees also expect us to be a good company with good values and ethics and uh, so therefore ESG is important. Uh, Now, having said that, uh, since we trade futures, uh, we don't have any voting rights uh, for for stocks, for example, so ESG will be more difficult and you can also discuss, you know, since we are long and short in different markets, uh, how should you calculate uh, your ESG impact? but what we have done so far is really that we we uh, encourage exchanges to start uh, ESG futures. So we do trade uh, some ESG stock indices um, since a couple of years, uh, and they are really they don't have that much liquidity yet in those markets. Uh, so it, it's more uh, a hustle for us uh, than than something that that helps us to drive performance. But we do that to be a part of the industry and try to encourage liquidity and try to get those markets uh, going. Um, and the other thing we do is that we have a sustainability forum uh, and, and we engage with the exchanges to try to get them to change contract specifications uh, when it comes to sourcing and production methods and so on. So uh, so getting contracts to be more ESG uh, friendly, if you say. But I think ESG is a big field that will uh, you know evolve over time. Uh, it's early stages so far, and we don't have any really clear view on w- what we mean with it and, and how you should uh, behave. Uh, and it's also different. In, if you look at the Nordics here, for example, we look at the environment and climate, and, and um, we have fossil 
uh, fuels that that we see as a problem. If you, if you look at the U.S., for example, they are more focused on uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, so, uh, so you need to look at it in, in different ways. Yeah, I just had one more really that I wanted to, to kind of was something you touched on earlier uh, around trading more markets and, and liquidity. And obviously, you know, you, you have a multi-strat approach. You are trading uh, short-term in some markets. And, you know, um, you mentioned, you know, the slippage and um, you, you had the algos have to be pretty smart to navigate that. But but from a pure liquidity perspective, you know, it, it is a topic that comes up periodically in markets that, you know, is liquidity not as good as it was? You know, you've got more high-frequency traders, um, you know, we've had a couple of episodes in the last while, you know, with, with treasuries in, in, in 2020, where the market seemed to be on the point of breaking. And then, you know, th this year we've had, like, major dislocations in the, the gilt market uh, around the, you know, the UK pensions. I mean, what's your perspective on liquidity in general and trading conditions? Is it, are you seeing any shifts or is this something that you're concerned about? Or are these kind of isolated issues in individual markets? I think um, if you look at in a long term perspective, uh, liquidity has changed over time and, and how markets uh, behave uh, has changed over time from floor uh, brokers to, to electronic trading to algorithmic trading and so on. So, so you need to adjust and adopt uh, in that uh, sense. Uh, and what we have done is that we, in as an integral part of our execution algos, we, we take into account the liquidity. Uh, and we have done that, that for quite a few years. So, so we will not trade uh, aggressively if, if there is not liquidity in the market, for example. And we will adjust the positions uh, also, not, not just to volatility, but also to liquidity, also in a, in a shorter time frame to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, leave a, a footstep, uh, a footprint in, in the markets uh, when we execute and, and instead try to, to be very passive. So I'm um, just curious now for, for, for many years, for about a decade or so, cash management was not really that important. Uh, not that it wasn't important, but there's not much you could do because we lived in the zero interest rate world. We don't do that anymore. Um, how, how do you approach cash management for the funds you manage where you, you're not using obviously uh, a large part of the of the cash itself for margin purposes? So we have a very conservative uh, approach there. So we use just uh, uh, government uh, T-bills. Uh, uh, and then, of course, we try to, to get as much of, out of that as possible. So we try to do that in a very efficient way. But we don't do any credits or, or so, I think. Uh, and that goes back to our client base. Uh, they are very professional institutional investors. They don't want us to be credit managers, uh, but instead, uh, you know, have the, the margins uh, in, a, in a safe place. Yeah, no, makes sense. Now, this is more like a little, um, I don't know what, how to phrase the question, um, but I'm curious in terms of if there's like one thing you hear people talk about trend following that you really disagree with when you hear people talk about trend following. Well, um, not to a great extent, but I, I, one thing is that uh, some some people say that uh, since all CTAs are so correlated, you just need one or two managers and then you get your trend following exposure. And I think that that is probably true uh, in a year like when last year, when, when uh, you know, everybody made a lot of money, markets are trending, uh, that's fine, you can pick one or two managers and you will be uh, pretty pretty in a good spot. The problem is when, when you have uh, more difficult markets and markets going sideways, not trending, then you need the diversification uh, and have several uh, CTAs because we are not correlated over those periods. Uh, and you can get uh, the monthly returns all over the place depending on if you have shifted your positions or not or, or how you have allocated the risk and so on. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's a great, uh, great point. Um, the final question, um, and that would be something like, what, what, what are the most, uh, what, what gets you most excited as you look into 2023? Or uh, are there any concerns that you see um, 
it's kind of a broad question. You can take it however you I'm, want. I'm pretty uh, bullish on, on the coming year, actually. I think uh, we are in an environment where uncertainty is extremely uh, high, and that's normally a good good spot for, for uh, trend following. And we also have central banks that, that has uh, pulled back a bit compared to where they were a few years back, or even they may be at the same side as, as we are, uh, and, and that uh, will help. Uh, you also a lot of divergences uh, between different regions uh, and different inflation cycles in different parts of the world. Uh, so, you know, th- there should be plenty of opportunities uh, the coming years. Uh. But then uh, at the end of the day, we all know that the best environment for us is when something totally unexpected happened. And and I can't do a forecast of what that would be. But but let's let's, uh, keep our fingers crossed that, uh, you know, things happen and and we'll uh, try to make money out of that. I think that's the one thing we can be sure of is that we're we're going to be surprised uh, on an ongoing basis about things that we didn't think about that actually did turn out. This was um, this was excellent. Uh, we're going to wrap up uh, our fascinating conversation. Svante, thank you so much for being on the podcast, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. And we hope to do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you are able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on the website. And of course, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.